Welcome to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast, where we interview our industry's top female executives from Australia, New Zealand, and around the world. I'm Michelle Batsis, your host and the Chief Executive Officer of the Public Transport Association, Australia, New Zealand. We're raising the voices of women for everyone who works in public transport and mobility, and particularly for any of our listeners who are early in their transport careers and looking for inspiration. Each of our guests shares her views on the future of public transport and provides insights into their career journeys. Make sure you follow Women Who Move Nations on your favorite podcast platform and rate the show to help more people find us. You can also join our community on LinkedIn by searching Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. We're also on Twitter at PTAANZ underscore or visit us at www.ptaanz.org. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. You're listening to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Batsis, and thanks for tuning in. Today, we're talking to Sally Stannard, the Deputy Director General at the Department of Transport and Main Roads in Queensland and the head of TransLink. Sally is also Vice Chair of our Board of Directors at the Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. So Sally and I already know each other quite well, and I'm really excited to have this chat with you today, Sally, and hear some of the insights to the work you're doing and also about your impressive career. So welcome. Thank you, Michelle. I'm also excited to talk to you today. Awesome. Well, let's get stuck into it. And to start with Sally, I wanted to talk a bit with you about the exciting transition that our association is currently going through. We've been operating in Australia and New Zealand as a regional association for the International Association of Public Transport for the last 20 years. And we're now becoming an independent regional peak body called the Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you are vice chair of our board of directors and you're very involved in developing the strategy for our new association and you're also a senior executive of one of our premier members. And I wanted to ask you, what do you see to be the key benefits of this transition for our members and the broader public transport sector in Australia and New Zealand? Look, it's really exciting to be in that role and thinking about the future of our organisation. Clearly, over the last 20 years, UITP ANZ has done great things for the region. But I think there's a real sign of maturity in the step that we're taking right now, where the organisation is really focused on those deep relationships here in our region. We're really excited as a group to look to uh, where we can forge those relationships and partnerships with like-minded organisations. And that makes me really excited about the learning we can get from nearby Asian cities and from what's going on in the US at the moment and all of those possibilities around partnerships that we can form here in Australia and New Zealand as well. So I think you'll see the best of what UITP has done as UITP ANZ to date, but I think members are also going to be really excited by the new partnerships and relationships we're going to build. Yeah, absolutely, Sally. And uh, we're really excited, right, about what's still to come. So I wanted to ask you, let's talk about your day job. I'd mentioned that you're at Department of Transport and Main Roads in Queensland, and I'd love to hear about what are you responsible for and what are your priorities for public transport in your jurisdiction? 
thanks for the opportunity to talk about my favourite subject. Look, I'm really passionate about public transport and that's why I was keen to come to this role. I'm passionate about what it does for communities and cities and regions like South East Queensland and broadly across Queensland. So my remit and the remit work of the TransLink Division in Transport and Main Roads extends right across Queensland. It takes in all public and passenger transport modes. So we're responsible for light rail on the Gold Coast. We're responsible for heavy rail throughout southeast Queensland. We have contracts with bus operators right around the state. There's nearly a thousand school bus contracts um, run through my part of the department that get kids to school every day. We also are involved in the personalised transport industry, ensuring that taxis and rideshare can coexist and provide the best service for customers. And we also get involved in ticketing technology. So we've got some really exciting work underway at the moment, delivering smart ticketing in firstly southeast Queensland and broadly across Queensland. So it's a wide remit. There's a lot of focus in terms of priorities at the moment on rail um, with some major infrastructure delivery underway in Cross River Rail. And why that's exciting to me is what it does for the capacity of the rail network in the CBD Um, And that really allows us to extend rail throughout the region in terms of levels of service for customers. Um, It'll be a really exciting next 10 years for rail in Queensland. In the bus space, we are facing a fantastic opportunity for zero emission bus technology in Queensland. We've got some strong commitments from the government, like many other states around Australia. I think one of the unique things in Queensland, though, is that marker of Olympics. So it would be remiss of me to not comment on the amount of focus that has given us. So There's a lot of important things we've needed to do for the growth of the region. What we now see is this bookend, I call it, of the Olympics at 2032. We have to have so much work done by then. It sounds like there's heaps going on, but also so exciting about the Olympics. I mean, we see that in every city around the world that hosts the Olympics. It just brings so much economic activity uh, and so many people there, but also the infrastructure development as well. So that'll be really exciting to see. Sally, you've got heaps happening, right? Such a broad remit that you've just outlined. And I thought it'd be really interesting to hear for our listeners, what does your typical day or week entail, right? Because I'm assuming there's lots going on. Yeah, that's a great question. And I love the thought that there might be young people out there listening, because when I was thinking about my career, I didn't have a clue what happened inside the walls of government. So I'd be delighted to talk about that. I have a team of nearly 600 staff across the state of Queensland, and it's a big state geographically, but really diverse. There's lots of different needs in different parts of the state with really intense public transport in southeast Queensland. So uh, a lot of my focus inside southeast Queensland is about working with our operating delivery partners. So Queensland Rail run the rail network in southeast Queensland under contract to us. And I would typically spend some of my week working through with Queensland Rail uh, some of the operational KPIs or how we're going in the delivery of those major projects. Inside the business, I am responsible for the governance of a lot of investment on behalf of the state where we are delivering changes to the bus and rail network and doing that through contracts with delivery partners. So some of my week is about sitting with my teams and working through the review of papers and the approval of governance. And, you know, in a past life, I would have said that's the boring bit. What I've now realised is that's where I really get to shape the investment that we're making in public and passenger transport. And so that's really exciting to be able to lead and show focus in terms of where we should make the best investment for customers. We have a strategy at the moment, which has been released in draft to the community called Creating Better Connections for Queenslanders. And a lot of it is about how we help the public transport system to grow and evolve to the local needs across Queensland. 
it talks a lot in that plan about how we'll do local planning of local services, how we'll work with our operating delivery partners and stakeholders. So a big part of my job is outward looking, talking to the people who run local governments around our state uh, and what their plans are and how land uses are changing and how precincts are changing to make sure we can get the public and passenger transport right in those locations. I am also lucky enough to do what I would call leadership work, you know, a bit of work talking to my team about great things that are happening on the network and building a narrative around where we're going so that people can see how their role fits into this organisation because it can be really busy. And it can also be easy to focus on your day job and forget the bigger picture when you're as busy as we are at the moment. So I think a part of my job is to help my team to keep seeing the bigger picture. And those are the sessions I really love. So they're whiteboard sessions, they're scribbling on the wall about what are we going to do about this? How are we going to align that to this delivery timeframe? What's in your way? I often ask my team, what's in your way? What's the thing that's stopping you from achieving what you need to in the timeframe ahead? And because we now in, in the TransLink division are responsible for the services running right there now today, the investment in those services tomorrow, and then increasingly what the shape of the network is in the next 10 years and ready for the Olympics. My role spans focus on today through to big scale investment to be delivered over the next 10 years. So I love the variety in my job that comes as part of that. And you've caught me on a day where I've had a real highlight where I got to represent the Queensland government and meet the Austrian ambassador. And that's probably something that I wasn't ready for in this role either. This is a part of the role that represents Queensland to the world. And that's really exciting. I've had a couple of opportunities to do that in this role. And I'm I'm really proud to be part of the face of Queensland. That's awesome. I mean, it's so exciting, actually, just to think about all of the different things that you're doing and get to be involved with as well, and how you shape the future of public transport in Queensland. There's something I wanted to ask you about and and for people who are in Australia or, you know, kind of follow the news of what's been happening here, the floods that um, have occurred in southeast Queensland over this summer have been absolutely devastating. And I know that that has had a huge impact on the public transport and the road network. And I wanted to ask you a bit about that experience and maybe reflecting back, you know, as a leader, from a leadership perspective, how did you adjust your decision-making to get your team through that challenging event? Yes, look, it certainly was a challenging event and there was a lot of heartache and heartbreak for members of our community. Um, And some of them were our employees and we were asking them to come to work at the same time as they were trying to clean up flooding in their house. So I, I just want to acknowledge that there was a lot of personal impact from the floods that will take years for people to recover from. If I go to the impacts to the network and how that felt for us, I need to acknowledge first up that I'm a strategic planner at heart. For years, I've worked in medium-term strategic planning. What are we doing on the network over the next 10 years? And what the floods showed me was the excellence in my business and in my delivery partners to manage the day of operations. And this is where those people with that experience and skill set really came to the fore. They stood up, they handled change by the minute, by the half hour, by the hour, they responded We handled about nine days of flood recovery back to back. And so in the reflections now with those senior people in other um, organisations who ran services for us, we've been reflecting on what it looks like to manage fatigue through a period like that. A lot of those genuinely operational people operate really well in that moment of pressure and um, intense adrenaline that they need to get through that. And then they really do need a recovery period at the end of that. And so I learned a lot from standing alongside some people who've done this many times before. In terms of my own leadership in that space and my decision-making, what I knew was that the flow of information needed to be really direct to the people who needed to act. And sometimes when we rely on our normal governance and decision-making, we have information that flows up and 
eventually makes it base to the top and then maybe passes across to the other delivery partner and maybe passes back down the chain to the person who's going to make the changes. And, and we also make sure we get that information to customers in a timely manner. What the floods really showed us was that we could break down a lot of those barriers and ensure that that information flowed quickly. And we did that with some really simple stand-up conversations at executive levels so that information could be passed across quickly. And also because people are making decisions in the space of uncertainty, they needed to make decisions quickly. And we had had a little bit of experience um, in COVID of that same kind of decision-making that you're making without all the data and modelling in the world and just relying on what you know and what you're seeing on the network was particularly to do with workforce absences arising as a result of COVID infections coming to Queensland. And I must acknowledge we've been extremely lucky in Queensland with the rate of COVID infection having been relatively low. But what that meant for delivery partners was when we faced the January Omicron outbreak, they were dealing with significant staff absences for the first time. We had modelling that indicated this would be very dire for our network and we needed to make decisions in that context of uncertainty. So by being able to talk between the major delivery partners, share the anecdotes, share what they were seeing, they were able to build their own understanding of the data inside their organisations. And my role in that was to join the dots to make sure those conversations could happen and to reflect that into our business. Um, we were responsible for collating data across a range of organisations, all of the delivery partners, um, both in southeast Queensland and across the state. And that gave a broad picture to government and decision makers about what was going on in some small businesses, in some large businesses, and in some very large businesses. And it was a little snapshot into what was going on in the community. So I felt really pleased that my team inside the business were able to prepare that data in a way that was useful to inform some very significant decisions that government was taking. If I go back to the floods then, we applied some of that learning about flowing information as quickly as we could. And the other thing that I think I'm, I'm proud of in that space is that our operational delivery partners knew what they needed to do and they made excellent decisions in the absence of certainty and they got on with it. They just got on with the job of getting the services back up and running. They also had safety at the front of their decision-making first time every time, and that was so important that they protected the safety of their staff and their assets then as they made those decisions throughout. And, and for Queensland Rail in particular, there were some very significant decisions they needed to, to take about when to stop services so that they could reposition some very expensive train assets to protect them from potential flood inundation. And I reflect on that a lot, that that decision was able to be made because of anecdotes about what had happened in previous flooding events. So to ensure that we could be resilient in the future, we did a sharing of that learning with our entire TransLink organisation and had a panel session talking about the floods. Because in my mind, there'll be leaders in the future, 10 years from now at the next flooding event, who are sitting somewhere in our business. And they will now have heard the stories of the 2022 floods. And they'll be able to use that to inform their decision making in, in whatever next event unfolds. So I think some of the resilience that we build going forward is actually less about infrastructure and more about people, people knowing how to work together. The one that we reflected on a lot in TransLink was our ability to get targeted information to customers. And that's something that we'll be spending some more time reflecting and building into our future investment program because it will assist us in those major events coming to Queensland as well. Yeah, thanks for sharing, Sally. I mean, it sounds like an incredibly challenging time, but also really nice to hear as well that the lessons that come out around that and, you know, and how that can be used for planning going forward. I wanted to ask you about another topic, a bit of a hot topic at the moment, zero emissions transport. And I'm aware that Australia's first 100% electric bus depot recently opened up on the Gold Coast in Queensland. 
And I wanted to ask you about your agency's role in that. So how are you working at TransLink with private sector to make this transition happen and what are you focused on? It's a great challenge, isn't it, to suddenly say to a a sector that's relied on diesel engines for a long time that they're going to be zero emission. And also to leave that a little bit open because in some cases we've got operators trialling hydrogen and and we've got many operators trialling and rolling out battery electric buses. So it's a little bit similar to the previous conversation about making decisions in uncertain times. We know we need to reduce emissions drastically and fast. And so TransLink is playing uh, a really exciting role where we're working with the delivery partners to prepare pilots initially, so pilot projects where we're rolling out small-scale trials and and, uh, small-scale rollouts of zero-emission technology. That enables our delivery partners to um, have some of that technology in their fleet, to manage it, to touch it and feel it, to think about their maintenance, to learn how it performs, to let their wider workforce engage with that technology and, and adjust to it. So we're certainly facilitating that rollout on on small-scale pilots. The bigger role that we're playing is thinking through the strategy of how do we do this whole scale? And you've started to see some investment playing out in other states about a more wide-scale rollout. TransLink is currently examining what charging infrastructure would look like of a scale that could meet the needs of the entire bus fleet. And that is a really big task for us to understand on the distributed depot base that exists within the network. In terms of how we're working with the private sector, we're listening, we're all ears, because the experience of zero emission bus is fairly new in Australia, but not new globally. There are operators who have run big zero emissions fleet for a number of years. Some of them are our delivery partners and they're talking to us about their global experience. Others are not our delivery partners and they're still talking to us about their global experience. And it's really encouraging to see that that Shared learning is really going to make this a transition that is workable and seamless in Australia. I think we're just at the right point. We're not bleeding edge, um, but we're certainly transitioning fast. So we're learning from all of those great experiences around the world. We are learning about grid supply. We're learning about what kind of charging technology. We're learning about how reliable it can be. What do the batteries do after they've been used for these kind of vehicles? So there's lots of learning going on and I think that's happening in a genuine spirit of collaboration, which I'm really enjoying because that's how we get the best outcomes when we've got the private sector and the public sector joined at the hip to deliver the great outcomes for the state. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You know, when it comes to kind of innovation, it's even more important, I think, to be working with public private sector hand in hand, but also to be learning from others. And actually, I think we often talk about this. We don't need to be bleeding edge in Australia but we can be leading edge by learning from others and then be able to take that step change forward. I wanted to go back to the Olympics. I know that Queensland has just recently been awarded the Olympic and Paralympic Games. And I heard, and I don't know if this is true, but that there's talk of them being car-free. And I know it's early days, but I wondered if there's anything you can share about the thinking for what the vision is for the public transport network in 2032 And how is the Games helping to accelerate infrastructure and improvements to the network? It certainly is car-free, Michelle. What that means is there's no spectator car parking at any Olympic event. So if you just get your head around that, the 2032 Olympics will be delivered regionally in Queensland. So there'll be some locations outside the CBDs um, where there'll be a venue for an event. And those will also be serviced by public transport to get people to those venues. So that's a really exciting challenge for us. You've got some great questions built into that one, so I'll try and break that down a bit. 
what will the network look like in southeast Queensland in 2032 is our first question. And then there's a second question about what does our Olympic network look like? And the reason I say that is because before we had the Olympics, we already knew we had a massive growth challenge in southeast Queensland. People love this state. It's growing really fast and it's at a tipping point in terms of public transport capacity. Sydney and Melbourne are already there where the obvious choice in the AM peak is public transport and, and you know, from living in Melbourne when I was there. It's not a place that you choose to drive your car. Typically, you know, public transport is the mode of choice for the peak periods. Queensland is coming to that point and, and we'll particularly experience that over the next 10 years. So the role and importance of public transport in enabling economic growth for the state is, it's really clear to me when I look into transport model forecasts. One of the exciting things about the Olympics is they have what, you, what they call a new normal. And what that means is that the new normal for Olympic Games is that there isn't Olympic Games infrastructure. The reason they don't want to do that is they know how extremely expensive infrastructure investment is now and they want to deliver Olympics and events in locations where the public transport networks are great and serve the region. And so that's a really important message for us. You know, we need games that can be accommodated and delivered on the network that we will have in place. Now, we are lucky in Queensland that we were already building and delivering Cross River Rail, which delivers a rail station under our major sporting venue at Woolloongabba, which will be the Olympic Stadium. There's plenty of work to be done about how we ensure the appropriate bus access to the rail and rail station access at that location. Um, there was some recent announcements about an interchange between bus and rail at that venue. So we've got some key nodes identified, which is excellent. And they were already underway, which is a good thing because if they hadn't been, 10 years seems like a long time, but I can assure you that it's not. We're also in procurement for additional rail fleet for Queensland. And thankfully, that was already underway as well before the Olympics were announced, because without that, the time to run a detailed global procurement process, ensure in that process we're seeking local manufacturing capability. And so we are we have a significant lead time to have all of that mobilised, but we were already underway with that before the Olympics was awarded. So there's some excellent foundational pieces. We are also in the process of delivering some rail capacity upgrades between Brisbane and the Gold Coast, which will ensure that we can provide a high level of frequency in the time when the games are on. With rail, you buy large chunks of capacity each time you do a rail project. We don't need to use all the capacity straight away, but we will have it there for surge capacity when the event is on. We're also examining the needs for access between Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast because we know that visitors who come to the region may well want to stay on the beautiful Sunshine Coast and come to events in Brisbane. And so to make sure that our transport connections are excellent, we're also examining what the needs are there. So I think what you'll see in Queensland is the perhaps spring forward, but not a huge spring forward, really a delivery of the infrastructure program we needed for the region over the next 10 years. You know, I've got a lot of politicians around who are talking about the legacy of the Games, but when I see a program of work like we've laid out actually going to be delivered in the next 10 years, I am really excited by the potential legacy that will be a really thriving public transport capacity in a region that's growing as fast as southeast Queensland. So we'll be working hard to get it all done and we need all of the clever people from around the country to know that the work is on in Queensland because there'll be plenty to do. Yeah, it sounds so exciting though, Sally. I'm already thinking about where I'll stay when the Olympics is on. And I think it's exciting though to, to think about how these kinds of opportunities really provide a platform to get the focus on public transport. You know, I think that's what's most exciting, right, because we're very focused on promoting public transport and these types of events actually bring the focus to it. So I love that it's car free. Thanks for confirming. 
I wanted to change the course of the discussion now and hear more about your professional journey and career. So I understand that you studied civil engineering, which we know is a traditionally male-dominated field in engineering. And actually, a lot of transport is still male-dominated. You know, statistics have come out that have said only 20% of leadership positions are held by women in the transport sector. I want to acknowledge, though, we know it's changing and we have seen improvement, but there's still a lot to go. And I thought it'd be really interesting to ask you, what was your experience like when you were studying engineering and then coming into an industry that is male-dominated? And do you have any advice about that? I love to reflect on this moment. When I started civil engineering, there were 20 females in a cohort of 200. And I was in the civil and environmental stream and we were the best represented in terms of women, but we did a lot of core subjects with the electrical engineers and the computer software engineers and the mechanical engineers. And I can guarantee you there were even less women in those cohorts. So um, our little group of 20 that entered sort of knew each other. And what was fascinating was many of us came into civil engineering at a time when women were told, you can do anything, you can, you can be anything. And I remember the shock of my life when I went out of that university environment. At the end of my first year of study, we had an industrial placement, went onto a construction site. We were building a piece of road infrastructure and there were only two other women on site. One was the finance lady and one was the lady who answered the phones at the front door of the site office. And other than that, it was me. And it was very shocking. It wasn't what I was ready for. I There was women in engineering programs at the university and they were bringing women into, into engineering. And I really wasn't ready for it to be such a small number. It was, however, an experience that I really enjoyed. And I think because I came from a practical background, having grown up on a farm, I felt quite comfortable in the in the dusty environment on site talking about the concrete because I'd mixed concrete strainer posts with my dad. You know, some of that really practical background experience and growing up came to the fore. So, you know, I had a great experience. But when I went back into the university environment of those 20 women, only 10 kept going to study engineering because the other 10 worked out that this was not an environment they wanted to work in. And I often reflect on that and think, you know, what a great thing that the university had those industrial placements so early in our career. Because imagine if you did five and a half years of engineering study and then decided it was a place you didn't want to work. What's really interesting as I reflect on those women who did go through back in that time are still professional friends of mine, but very few are in what I would call traditional engineering. But their engineering degrees and often combined with other um, study have taken them to some incredible places, particularly in leading sustainability in infrastructure um, and sustainability in investment. And I see those women as real shining lights for me. Um, in terms of where my peers and cohorts have gone. Look, it's certainly changing. And I I do work now in in what I would consider to be a relatively male-dominated industry still. But what I find is that the women I work with are really making an effort to support each other in that space. And do you know what else I find? The men in this space are making an effort too. And that makes such a big difference because that wasn't always the case, but it's certainly something that I've enjoyed about the role that I have. My advice to women wanting to come into this sector are to get as good a look as you can before you decide to to enter. So, you know, industrial experience, workplace um, experiences, uh, work even at high school, you know, whatever programs you can to get an eye into the sector. Because once you decide you want to be in, in this sector, it can be extremely rewarding. But I would say go in eyes wide open about what the work is like, what the nature of the work is, what the environment is that you're going to be working in and make sure it's where you want to be. But we need more women in this sector. So if you want to come in and create change in these cities that we're growing in Australia, 
um, this is a fantastic way to do it. And engineering degrees can take you to so many different roles. So I think it's definitely a, a great foundation for learning. Thanks for sharing that story, Sally, because I understand it's personal as well, right, to kind of reflect back. But um, it's fascinating to hear kind of your experience then and uh, and to compare, I think, to how people experience studying these fields at the moment. I wanted to ask you about another challenge that I think many professionals face and many women in particular, given that so many of us have different kinds of care responsibilities or things outside work. And so I want to talk to you about work-life balance. And I know that you're a mum with kids. Obviously, you've got a huge job, right? We've kind of heard the remit you have. There's a lot going on in Queensland in public transport. And I wanted to ask you, how do you manage work-life balance, if at all? And I say that because I've heard from so many of our guests, actually, that people do struggle with this. And how do you find moments for yourself? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a fiction. I'm going to reflect on that point where I said that uh, I came into the sector and I came into, I guess, my professional life and my my married life being told you can have it all, women can have it all. And eventually I, I remember the anecdote that says you can have it all, but it's pretty hard to have it all at once. Look, my husband is a big part of why I can do what I do. And so I would suggest to any women, any women out there who want to combine career and family, have a good look at the person who's going to pick up some of the other half and make sure they're ready to do that. Because that's why it works for me because I've got someone on the other side saying, yeah, I'm going to do this bit because you want to do that bit. We have both adjusted through the course of our lives in terms of whose career is doing what. And that's been a really important conversation for us. Not easy conversations, I must say, in um, two very career focused um, and keen people who want to do great things in the world. You know, we're both pretty passionate about what we do. And so we, we need to make space for each other at different points in our career. I guess the other thing that I would say is I work because I love what I do. You know, I'm extremely passionate about public transport and about how it can shape and change cities and the experience of people in cities. And if you didn't love what you did, I think it would be extremely hard to continue to try and live with that balance of working hard at home and at work. So I think the moments for myself are are actually delighting in the moments I'm choosing. You know, I'm choosing to be at work to do these really exciting projects and I'm choosing to step up and into this level. At the same time, I chose to have three beautiful children and I choose to spend time at their uh, last week, I managed to make it to cross country and watch one of my kids run. And, um, you know, on the weekend, we leave at 6am to get to rugby. And, and so I make a choice to do those things. And it's really great to reflect on this is the choice that I made. And I'm so lucky to have had that choice. So I'm absolutely delighting in it. It's a busy season, but there are seasons in your life that are not so busy. This is my busy season and I'm going to make the most of it. Sally, you're so committed. 6am for rugby on the weekend. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's such a great reflection. It's about the choice we make, right? I think that's actually really good to think about because we are making a proactive choice about how we spend our time. I wanted to ask you about another issue often comes up in our discussions on this podcast, and that is about imposter syndrome. And I know it's something that a lot of women talk about that they struggle with. They find themselves having doubts, that little voice in the back of their head. And I think what I wanted to ask you, you know, really specifically is around the ability for women to step up and step into a space, into a new role where you've got different sets of accountabilities or a broader remit that you've never had before. And I wanted to ask you, you know, what has been your experience of preparing yourself to step into a larger role? And do you have any advice for women who might be lacking a bit of confidence about taking that next step? 
I have a great story of this. So I once worked in an organisation that did what they called 360 interviews. So not 360 feedback once you're in the role, but 360 interviews where we got to interview the people who would be our bosses. And it was a fascinating experiment, I guess, um, a university sector running this way of working. And I remember being on the interview panel for two people who wanted the promotion position and one was male and one was female. And I knew both of them because they were both internal applicants. So I knew what they did in the organisation or how they'd managed certain projects. But I had to sit in, on the panel and listen to these two people talk about their experience in such different ways. And the man spent most of the interview talking about I and what I did. And the woman spent most of the interview talking about we and what we did. And I remember just how stark this was for me because it's quite a rare experience to sit on a panel like that with your bosses, but it's also a rare experience to sit with two people you know. You know, I knew from my lived experience how they both worked, but I just saw them present in interview, which is a huge part of how we choose people for promotions. And I saw the stark difference really firsthand. So it was a big learning experience for me about how I behave in interviews and how I talk about the work that I've done really to enable an interview panel to get what they need. And I think that's such a really important skill to learn and practice and recognise that it doesn't come naturally to people. But I'd really encourage women who are wanting to take a step, if you're uncertain, practice that interview because it's a, such a crucial step to getting the job. But in terms of thinking about wanting to go for it at all, I'll go back to the, the comment I made before about doing something you love. You know, if you're doing this because you love it, because you want to create change, because you want to invest your time and energy in it, then, you know, first step is choose the right boss because um, if you want flexibility or if you want to do the next step and the next challenge, you need supportive leaders around you. Here's another anecdote. I was walking with my boss to a meeting the other day. It was about 9.30 in the morning for a 10 o'clock meeting. We were walking through Brisbane CBD and he said to me, it's my fourth meeting of the day. And I drew breath and thought, it's my first because I only just got to work. But I have done swimming training and drop off to band and drop off to childcare before that. So I said it, I said it out loud. I said, this is my fourth meeting too, if you count swim training and drop off to band. And he said, of course we do, because that's part of who you are. And I thought, you know, how many places in the world do you get to work like that? That really mattered to me, that my role as a mum was just as important as my role at work. Isn't that fantastic? That actually just made me really smile, Sally. Thanks for sharing that story. I wanted to ask you, you know, you kind of reflected back earlier just on a previous role, right, where you were talking about that 360 interview process. And perhaps if you look back, what would be your achievement, a professional achievement that you're most proud of? This is a really hard question to answer. You know, I find this one particularly challenging because sometimes the things that stick in your mind are not the super duper achievements. They're the things that were more bumpy where you learned things. But look, I'm really excited by, by this role. And what I'm excited about is that we had a plan for the network. And over the last probably 12 months, some really significant investment decisions have been made to make that be possible. And I remember for many years thinking, I wanted to be in a position where I could talk to those decision makers and I could help them make the right decisions about where their investment was going. And I really feel like that's where I am right now, which I'm absolutely delighted by. You know, we've seen a massive investment in train fleet capacity. We've seen a huge investment in track infrastructure capacity. And we really are seeing a focus on investing in the more sustainable modes in the region. And I'm you know, I'm absolutely delighted by that because that's actually something I've been working on for nearly three years. And to see that investment start to flow to those really important projects, that's something I'm really proud of. It's really current, Michelle, but it is something that I'm extremely proud of right now. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Sally. I wanted to ask you about your career. 
nearly at the end of our questions. And this one I always ask, how do you plan your career? Do you have a five or 10 year plan or do you prefer to take the opportunities as they come? I am definitely a take opportunities as they come person. I came back to work pretty quickly after my first two children. My third child was born and my husband got an interstate job opportunity. So that's when we went for a sojourn down to Victoria. We were gone, we're going for 18 months and went for four years. After that, that gave me the opportunity to start my own business. I ended up employing people and providing advice to different state agencies. And that was a fantastic opportunity to run my own business and sit on some boards in different sectors. And then to come back to this job opening up and at the time that it is right now in Queensland was just an amazing opportunity and pretty hard to turn down. So no, definitely opportunistic for me. Yeah, thanks for sharing. It's really interesting because lots of women I've interviewed have said they have a plan, um, but there's quite a few that take the opportunities as they come. And I think that's really great for our audience to reflect too, right, that there's lots of ways that you can approach planning your career. I have one last question for you, Sally. To finish off our chat today, could you share your top piece of advice for any younger female public transport professionals out there listening? Oh, stick with it. We need you in public and uh, passenger transport. We absolutely need more women at the table making decisions and leading teams. And so I would say stick with it and reach out. You need to build your networks. Um, Post-COVID hybrid working makes that even more challenging. So take the opportunity to reach out and say good day because I can guarantee there's some women sitting at some desks now who were you 10 years ago and and they wanted to do exactly that. So I'd say reach out because we we want to build up the networks and we want you here at the table with us. That is awesome. Thank you, Sally. And thank you so much for your time today. It was awesome to hear about some of the work that you're doing and also your career history. Thanks so much. Thanks, Michelle. It was a great pleasure to speak with you and I feel your excitement flowing as well. It's a really exciting time here in Queensland. It is. I love public transport, so it's been awesome to chat. That was Sally Stannard, the Deputy Director General of the Department of Transport and Main Roads in Queensland and the head of TransLink. Sally's also a Vice Chair on our Board of Directors. Thank you for listening to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. This series is produced by Dylan Adler with copywriting by Sophia Dickinson. Thanks for joining us as we profile women working in public transport and sustainable mobility and inspire the next generation of female leaders. I'm Michelle Batsis. Keep safe and keep our nations moving.